Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast, the place where leading authors share objects that have inspired their creative process. I'm Katie Brand and I'm very excited to have in the studio with me an author whose first novel is one of my favourites of all time. That's how quickly that happened. I have literally been telling anyone who will listen to me to read it. I've been giving copies away. It was one of the most anticipated books of last year. It sparked a frantic 10-way bidding war between publishers. It was nominated for the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2018 uh, and it was on many of the best books of the year list and the Times named it Historical Fiction Book of the Year. It's Imogen Hermes Gower, and her novel is The Mermaid and Mrs. Hancock. Imogen, welcome. Hey, thank you. Thank you very much for coming and joining me. Um, I've been very much looking forward to talking to you. Now, as many uh, of you may know, at the heart of the Penguin podcast are a handful of objects that our guests have chosen, and they're items that have helped them to unlock their creativity. And so I imagine that Imogen, who's a scholar of archaeology and art history, will find this quite easy, I hope. And so she's kindly brought in a photo of a very special Georgian painting, a beautiful old bottle of red ink and a packet of Jaffa cakes. (laughs) So we'll explore those in a moment. We'll particularly explore the Jaffa cakes, I think, in detail. But first of all, The Mermaid and Mrs Hancock has just come out in paperback. And I know you're working on another book, but this is your first. So it's been quite a year for you, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. It's been... A busy and crazy year, really? I would say, yeah. I think everyone dreams of it, don't they? This notion that you write your first thing and everyone loves it immediately mm. and you become a bit of a star in your field and it feels like a sort of dream in a way. But I think as well, people for whom that happens, it can be a bit of a mixed blessing as well. It can be a bit of a shock in some ways. Have you found that? Yeah, in in loads of ways. It's quite discombobulating. It does make you feel like... There are such a million opinions in the world on what you've written and whether you should have written it that way. It's quite hard to kind of hold on to that thing in your core that's like, well, that's the book that I wanted to write. Yes, yes. I think what I enjoyed about writing it was having quite particular language and there kind of being a kind of dynamism and bigness to it it's like Mm. cartoonishness to it I think it's really interesting you say that and you've identified that you must have felt a great deal of confidence in what you envisage the book to be would that be fair I think a lot of it was like what kind of book would I like to read and when I was researching the period what really appealed to me was this kind of Georgian attraction to things that are quite overstated and kind of the largeness of things. Um, I think a lot of people would associate the Georgian literature or the Georgian period with Jane Austen now. Oh yeah. And everyone perhaps thinks of it as kind of nice washed out pale yeah, colours. But actually like... there are huge comic characters in Jane Austen aren't oh, there? Yeah. Very funny and sharp so actually that would have been consistent with the time that you found that Oh you were god yeah at. totally and also like she had a, such an eye for this kind of almost bawdy, definitely larger-than-life comedy, and I think that is often quite forgotten about her. Yes, I agree, I agree. Just give the listeners just a little brief synopsis of, of the story and the journey that we follow. At the beginning of the novel, which is about autumn 1785, Mr Hancock is living in Deptford, which is, at that point, is kind of just outside London. It's a very maritime town. This is where shipbuilding and trade happens. Um, It's very industrial. And that's his Um, business. That's his business. He is a merchant. Meanwhile, Angelica Neal um, is this high-class courtesan and she's living in Soho. She should be looking to move somewhere a bit fancier like St James's, which is where 
a woman who is previously her madam, who mm. runs a very high-class brothel and would like Angelica to return. And Angelica and Mr Hancock are kind of drawn together when Mr Hancock acquires this mermaid um, from one of his ships. And he decides to exhibit it. It makes its way into this high-class brothel and Angelica is roped in to kind of entertain him. But yes, and then we just follow their relationship, but then the relationship that they have with other people. Mm. This mermaid theme comes around again, but in a much more mystical and mysterious and intangible way. And, And they have to try to figure out between them, separately and together... Uh, and it felt like almost everyone's trying to do this, is is how to be happy and content uh, with what you have to some extent. Mm. Yeah, not to go too much into it, but for me, the second, this second mermaid, I think, brought with it this kind of whisper that you'll, you'll never achieve everything that you want, that what you want is unreachable. And I suppose I'd been quite interested in the idea that when people have a change of social status, even if it's for the better they quite often, they can become quite depressed just because they don't know how to comport themselves or make sense of themselves anymore, that they used to fit into this box and now they don't. And I think you get a bit lost, which seemed to make sense in this kind of world of Georgian social climbing. I think it also feels quite modern in that respect because even though perhaps some of the tools of, of how we express our ambition or desire to change ourselves are different now... That it's still a it's still a modern issue. I think mm. this idea of I must better myself all the time. I must constantly be trying to get better work, get a better job. And even though it's set very firmly where it's set, it speaks to all of those things of mm. of trying to just calm down a bit and look at what you've got. It's it felt fresh in a way. I think. Yeah. So in terms of the objects that you've been surrounded by in your work before uh, you became a novelist, tell us about your first object here as a Georgian painting which has its own story. It's also a little bit mysterious, a little bit strange. It's called An Experiment on a Bird in the Air Pump. And that's quite an extraordinary image. That's by Joseph Wright of Derby Uh painting. So I think it's from 1760s. And what's going Um, on in this? It's like a very dark painting with this one source of light in the middle of it, which is illuminating all the people around it. There's this man in a robe with kind of unkempt hair. He's come to demonstrate the experiment to these people gathered around kind of as a form of entertainment. Mm -hmm. It's science, but it's entertainment. Mm -hmm. Here, up in the dome, is a bird... He's put a bird in there and what he's going to do is extract all the air from the dome. Right. So then we can see that the bird is going to die because it can't breathe. So this proves that we breathe air. Mm -hmm. But what I like about it is just kind of all the little mini dramas happening around it. So all of these people are gathered around to look at this experiment. It's quite macabre, isn't it? It really is, yeah. There's a man with two little girls... Yes. Who are just who are really upset by it because this mm-hmm. bird is dying with no oxygen. Yeah, I mean, um, it must be a horrifying yeah, thing to it's watch. It's a really nasty thing to see. Yeah. I think he's come in thinking it'll be instructional and interesting, bring your kids to see this thing and mm-hmm. realising it's horribly backfired on it, him. It looks like he's sort of trying to trying to pull it back. Yeah, he's trying to be with like... With just enthusiasm and uh, but yeah. the girls are crying. Yeah, um, I, and he always kind of reminded me of Mr Hancock a bit, I think, <laughs> of just like, oh, this has gone badly wrong. Yes. I had a print of it on my desk while I was writing a lot. I think because of all this kind of human drama and this weird combination of science and entertainment. There's a lot of comical stuff in the book as well, but there is a slightly macabre sort of 
grotesque strand. You know, sometimes Angelica does seem quite grotesque in her. Mm. She is a grotesque in that sort of comic parlance. Yeah. And is that something that you've always been attracted to? It's something I enjoy. And as much as I think there's a lot to be said for sparse prose and paired back storytelling in the space between words, mm-hmm. I also think a 500-page book is fine. Yes, do you? <laughs> <laughs> Are there any writers that have inspired you in that sort of genre or or at all, in fact? I mean, they're kind of the ones you return to over and over again. I think Beryl Bainbridge always, mm. because she she does have quite a pungent way of writing. The characters are always quite peculiar and singular and there is often something kind of off-kilter or distasteful. That's really interesting because and pungent is such a great word but I well, I gave this book to my husband to read and he loved it. Some parts just sort of knocked his socks off a bit as it has with a few people I've given it to because anyone who's expecting something sort of very delicate and well-mannered is going to be surprised. <laughs> I mean there are scenes of the flesh uh, in the brothel particularly but also Mrs. Chapel, the the brothel owner, relieving herself in the back of a cab <laughs> in her bucket. You know, it's very fleshly. Do you, you know, yeah. so it's very carnal and and bawdy. It's not a delicate book about about Georgian London. No. And did did you ever sort of feel a bit like, oh God, I'm I'm, I'm gonna I'm embarrassed to think of X person reading this, <laughs> or I'm just gonna shy away from this, or did you go back at things like, oh, I don't know if I'm quite brave enough to leave that in, or I, or not, or did you just I love it? I never thought that. Actually, I think it was kind of the opposite. There were like things that I was like, well, that scene's going in, right? Like, that's <laughs> happening. And then my mum was like, oh, I've been reading it aloud to your grandma. <laughs> 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 my god yeah I know I don't know if she just like you know judiciously left some pages stuck together yes. or something I don't know I leave that to the walls of that room mm-hmm. um, to know how that went down I'd read about a real life precedent for it that was very similar mm-hmm. to basically a kind of orgy scene in this brothel that was a contemporary account of something like this happening and I thought well that's definitely going in did you know you had it in you when you were writing or did was it kind of no. like oh blimey I can really go for it with this I mean <laughs> I didn't realize I had this uh, to say and I could say it in this pre- precise way and have this effect even on myself as I write it did that surprise you as a fiction writer sometimes you need to include passages that you feel are a stretch for you hmm. which I think probably does involve pushing yourself as a writer a lot hmm. and one of the other themes of is obviously this sort of self made or self-sustaining women and Mm. that it really brings home how difficult it was to be a woman and have any kind of standard of living if you didn't have wealthy male relatives or you hadn't managed to get yourself married for whatever reason and there is a this sort of air of desperation sometimes amongst all of them really of how precarious it can all be. Mm. I've been reading about 18th century women for quite a long time I've been reading biographies of people like Dora Jordan who is one of my heroines, she was a comic actress. She was like a big star. Jane Austen saw her perform, lots of people saw her perform in kind of from the 1780s and 90s all the way through to the 1810s. Eventually having this relationship with the Duke of Clarence who went on to be William IV and they had 10 children together together for 20 years. She was paying for the family, like she was the breadwinner. Mm-hmm. And eventually he needed to marry a princess, so he ditched her and she had no access to their children. I think the youngest was about four 
years old at that point and she has to live abroad and she can't act anymore. Gosh. I believe Claire Tomalin wrote the That's book right, about. yeah. And she yes. was a guest on the Penguin podcast oh, as well. Was she? Yes, so oh, it might be worth a listen. I wrote her a fan letter. Did actually. you? <laughs> I did. <laughs> yeah, and she wrote back, which is oh, really good. Nice. That's yeah, nice. that was lovely. Yeah, I think I read that book when I was about fourteen, mm-hmm. and that was like what got me really interested in women of that kind of period. Just mm-hmm. the precariousness. There's nothing you can do about it. You have no control over your situation. It's always frustrates me when people are dismissive of Jane Austen and people even dare to call it chiclet, which is just ridiculous. Mm. But the the reason why people think that is because of the preoccupation with marriage of the female characters. Yeah. But when you look at it properly and you understand the context properly, it's because it's all you've maybe got between yeah, like... being kind of dignified or destitute. There's, Completely. That's it. And And particularly with your character, Angelica, who is trying to sort of tread a path between the two somehow to keep men interested because that's her only source of income but not so interested that they're going to prevent other men giving her you know it's yeah it's a fine line to walk it is. one of the things that I certainly relate to with Angelica is her love of small sweet things <laughs> um and there's a fantastic uh few scenes in the book where they go shopping for sweet things with her friend and um your next object as <laughs> I think some homage to that yeah uh, we have a plate of Jaffa cakes here yes. winking at us I can smell them yes <laughs> been, like sitting under my nose what um what what made you choose Jaffa cakes in particular I think probably from being a student, they were like my essay food. And mm-hmm. then when I was writing this book and I had quite a lot of marathon writing sessions, I ate a lot of Jaffa cakes. It's a sports person's food. It's yeah. like, you know. But you see a Wimbledon player having a banana. Exactly. A quick banana yeah. between sets. So you were sort of having yeah, a packet Jaffa of Jaffa cake cakes. between paragraphs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. This will be what listeners are screaming for here. Just some clarification. Just a quick answer. Biscuit or cake? Oh, my God, that's a can of worms, isn't it? Well, you say that, but there are those who believe, you see, that a bit, apparently a cake goes hard and, and a biscuit, biscuit goes, goes soft. soft. Yeah. Uh, they are Jaffa also... cake go- does go hard. Mm. Um, they are also called cakes, which I think is always a big giveaway. It is, but they're in the biscuit aisle. You see, it's a tough one, isn't it? And if you said, <laughs> I'll get some cakes in, and you brought Jaffa cakes, I don't think it would go down well. Well, especially now we live in the age of the cupcake Yes, that's true. And actually. there's a kind of tyranny of the cupcake now, I think, where the old favourite... I'm glad you brought them in because, you know, some of those cupcakes, they look good, but they can be actually disappointing oh, eating, I, I find. I don't know how you eat them anyway. I don't it's know just, how you eat them no. either. No, no. You have to sort of saw bits off them sometimes. Yeah, I think you have to take them apart and reassemble. <laughs> you cannot... You, c- you couldn't sustain yourself through a novel with a cupcake. No, you'd cupcakes. never get anything done. No, you spend just... your entire time pulling lollipops out of them or whatever exactly. it is you're supposed to do. <laughs> yeah, just like hands covered in yeah. icing. There's a bit of glass in here. It's <laughs> a real fairy. <laughs> <laughs> Those scenes of uh, Angelica and her best friend going shopping for sweet treats and so on and the description of all the sweet things and all of that kind of stuff, that just seemed to me to be such brilliant research on your part. And one of the things I love about the book is you wear the research lightly. Some people, they've done all this research and they're damn well going to put it all in there. And you're going to have to read it all because they've done it all and they're going to tell you about their homework. Whereas I felt there was a sort of joy to the, the detail that you had put in. And there's this fantastic 
bit where they see a pineapple mm. and they can't afford the pineapple. And what in particular is it about a pineapple? Was that of some significance or did you just make that up? There's a lot of like figures thrown around like how much it costs to grow to grow a pineapple or to buy a pineapple. This is to grow a pineapple in London. This is to grow a pineapple in London or in Britain somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, as a massive status symbol, it takes like several years for the plant to even get to maturity and you need someone who knows what they're doing to grow it. So it ends up being an incredibly expensive thing to produce Mm. and people really want it. And there's, you know, kind of a lot of anecdote about that you could hire a pineapple for your party and stuff. Like just have it in the middle of the table. Nobody touches it. (laughs) Then it goes back to the shop. You wonder if anyone ever ate them. They're too precious to eat. <laughs> yeah, they just are too precious you can to hire, eat. Them. I love that. You can hire a pineapple to yeah. be a talking point. Yeah, and then you give it back. In fact, I like that because that is what Mrs Chapel, the brothel keeper, does with the mermaid, isn't it? She yes. hires the mermaid as a talking point, as a way of generating interest in her parties. Yes. It, it sounds like they were good at giving parties. It's a bit of a lost art here, I think. In, mm. in you know, Everyone wears jeans and trainers. People wear jeans and trainers to weddings now. You don't have to broadcast all your cool stuff to the world by throwing a party and getting everyone to your house to have a look at it like you've got other ways of doing it Mm -hmm. whereas then and I think especially then it was a way of taking part in society it shows who you're connected to who'd invite you to your parties whereas I don't I just don't think we have to do that so much anymore Mm. but it's there are other ways of showing showing, yeah exactly (laughs) yeah but it is a shame because I think that that is kind of more fun well we've kind of kept the showing off but lost the social interaction a yes, bit perhaps exactly. or at least the person to person interaction mm. let's move on to your next object which is a bottle of red ink mm. what is this and why have you chosen well, it it's a very beautiful is, bottle it's a lovely bottle which is probably why I own it my partner's grandfather was an architect. It was his bottle of ink from his office, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And it smells great. Like, it smells like the <laughs> olden days. Great. Yeah, <laughs> just like having a big old sniff in the morning. So I have it on my desk. I never met him, but I know what kind of person he was. And I've seen his work, his designs and, you know, blueprints and that kind of thing. When was he mainly working? What era? I think he was apprenticing on the Royal Festival Hall and stuff like Goodness that. Goodness me, wow. Yeah, I would say the middle of the century is when he was mm-hmm. doing a lot of work. He seemed like a very precise, careful man with... As, and, as you would hope in an yes, architect. Yeah, I mean, no, <laughs> Especially in a building as large as the I expect of an architect. <laughs> yeah, Please um, check those angles. Exactly. Just would to... you just do it again? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that bottle, having it on my desk, makes me think about precision and editing particularly I think there's something about red ink it sort of sounds like it it reminds you of the craft or the work involved in perfecting something yeah completely of working tidily and being I suppose quite strict with yourself Mm. I think with a first draft in particular you get quite slapdash and then there's something about taking everything apart and putting it back together and whipping out all these extraneous words I interviewed Pat Barker um, last year and she you know incredibly eminent novelist and and she said exactly the same you know the first draft is sort of fun and easy but the craft is the rewrites yeah definitely I think until I started writing novels properly I don't think I realized how little of the work is in the first draft it's a big shock I think when you realize that isn't it because totally. one of the best bits of writing advice I was ever given was someone who said the first draft is just you telling yourself the story yeah so it should be fun 
it should actually... I mean, this isn't to dishearten anyone who doesn't find the first draft fun, because I know a lot of people find it difficult, but I sometimes wonder if the first draft is really hard, perhaps you're writing the wrong thing. Because for me, I think the first draft should be quite fun yeah. and quite absorbing, and you should just really enjoy telling yourself the story and letting the story unfold, and then is the real work after that. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think maybe that's where writer's block comes from, is when you see the whole mountain and you don't really take into account actually it's really tiny steps to get there and to accept that and to be like well the first draft's not going to be perfect and nor is the second draft and nor is the third draft but it's getting closer every time is kind of the thing that makes you not lose faith another writer that i know is very um successful said a slightly stark thing that stuck with me a bit where he said the first draft should, shouldn't take you more than three months. Mm. Uh, and if it takes you more than three months, it's either not a good idea or you're not good enough to write it. Ooh. <laughs> Gives you a chill, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. <laughs> but I've, that's helped me abandon things a few times, I mm. think, either because I'm not good enough to write it yet, I hope, or it's not a good idea. And it stops you wasting a lot of time. Yeah. Just flogging something that isn't going to work. Yeah, because I have slogged away on a novel that was eventually was just kind of like... <sighs> Mm. this isn't either I'm not good enough to write this or it's not a good idea there is no glory in thrashing that dead horse I guess yeah something I wanted to bring up as well that it's been in the news a lot quite rightly and there's lots of um, campaigning about this and about the recognition particularly of black people or members of ethnic minorities in historical fiction Mm. and television and film and that's definitely present in your book, I think, in, in the person of Polly and other characters. Was that something that was important to you to introduce? Did it come quite naturally? Was it just obvious to you that that would be in your research? It was more that they were definitely there, that someone like Polly, they were in brothels like that or they were living in London as free black Britons. They existed. I think it was more like what interests me. During the period of the novel, during that winter of 1785 to 86, is when there was huge debate about what do we do with the black poor population of London. There was a huge newspaper debate about it. There was a charitable foundation that was set up with public donations, which was for the relief of the black poor. There were several sites around the outskirts of London that were doing this. Just this debate about what do we owe these people, some of whom have been released from slavery, some of them came to the UK after fighting on our side in the American War of Independence and being promised freedom and jobs and this kind of thing at the other end, none of which are forthcoming, and now they're a burden on our parishes. This kind of really uncomfortable balance between being like we owe these people and... What are they doing here? We need to send them away. This winter was when um, they implemented what was called the Sierra Leone Project, which was rounding up a lot of black Londoners and putting them on a boat and sending them to Sierra Leone to, um, like, fend for themselves. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> and a lot, of, and a lot of the debate was kind of like, do you know that we've come from West Africa and we got sold into slavery there? Like, what? why would you send us back mm. to a continent where this could happen to us again like what safety is there for us there's a whole other kind of story there that I would have really loved to go to but I kind of realized it's not in the remit of the book Mm -hmm. but it seemed really relevant Mm. 
Well, we've been talking about the book a lot, but it'll be lovely to hear a little bit of it from the audio book. Interspersed between the story are some brief moments where we hear a mysterious voice talking from the depths and uh, it may or may not be the voice of a mermaid. So uh, let's have a listen. It might be the oldest thing in the world, for all it knows. It might be the very newest. This something sleeps in the dark, a secret even to itself. People who have never seen it might credit it with fingers, eyelashes, a voice. But how can they know? Who knows what it does in its small bubble when it does not even know itself? They will suggest it has a moral code, a motive, a divine purpose, a soul worth stealing. They assume its rules might be the same as theirs. They are wrong. It is a seed crammed with everything it will ever need. It beds down. It swims. It flies. Blind and deaf and dumb in its sensual world, it rides on tides of dreams. It knows or does not know the royal and churn of fluid all about it, and the thud and rush of some eternal comforting tide. What it knows is that it is part of something bigger. What it knows, if it knows, is that something is about to happen. It is prepared at every moment for something to happen. Something is about to happen. That was The Mermaid and Mrs Hancock, written by my guest Imogen Hermes Gower and read by Juliet Stevenson. Did you enjoy hearing that? <laughs> it's very weird hearing your own words back. Mm -hmm. Juliet Stevenson does cushion cushion it, though. You know. It's amazing. I think it's, it's a beautiful great. passage. And actually, it's sort of outside of the main narrative of the book, isn't mm. it? The, these quite sort of contemplative, mysterious passages. Uh, but that sort of sense of something about to happen, I think, is it's quite sort of exciting, actually. Mm. When you hear... I, I love hearing that sort of sense of anticipation. Yeah, that's actually the first bit of those sections that I wrote when I had some friends who were reading the manuscript while I was writing it, and one of them was like, you need the mermaid to speak. Mm -hmm. That was the first bit I wrote after she said that. That was my first experiment into it. So oh, it's, really? It's quite nice seeing it picked out as being... An example from the book. Mm. I think it's, it's such an interesting just additional voice. It's almost like an authorial voice that I don't... Yeah, I think that it was necessary, personally, because I didn't want the book to be like straight up pastiche. If it had only been the points of view of Mr Hancock and Angelica and these other 18th century characters, I think it could have been too safe. In lots of ways, I wanted the novel to be quite faithful to the feel of an 18th century novel that it's in three volumes and it has this particular voice to it I wanted it to feel contemporary as well as having a faithfulness to this 18th century precedent I, I don't see the point in kind of just straight up aping something that's already happened mm. it is a historical work of fiction but it's also 
feels relevant. I mm. think that's the thing. Yeah. It's been great chatting with you. Thank you so much for coming in. Well, thank and you for having me. <laughs> I just want to remind people as well that if you haven't already, you can subscribe to the Penguin Podcast using any of the pod players or podcatchers such as iTunes, Acast, SoundCloud or Spotify on your desktop or smartphone. And if you like what you hear, please do share, rate and review the Penguin Podcast and we'd love to know what you think. Uh, so Imogen, just lastly, and um, this is no surprise to me, and I can't wait to see it already. But I believe the film and TV rights of your book are out there. Is that right? Have they been... They have been... It's optioned. Okay. Is that the right... Is that the... Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. the thing. That's definitely the first um, stage. Yeah, that's, that's the first stage by Playground, who are amazing. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to play fantasy I think that's casting. Very it's wise. Not. Yes. Well, you can, but just <laughs> in keep my, it to just yourself. In my head. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a yeah, definitely a, the wise way to go. But I shall be very excited to see uh, what happens with it, and also with anything you do next. So I'm glad to hear you're on your onto your second second work already. That'll be fine. Yeah, yeah it'll be fine. Of course, <laughs> fine, of course, yeah. it'll be fine. Yeah, uh, it'll arrive when it arrives, exactly. and I'm very, very much look forward to seeing it and hopefully talking to you about it as well. Yes, that'd be lovely. Um, so thank you very much to my guest Imogen Hermes Gower for joining me today on the Penguin Podcast. And please, please let me issue this blanket recommendation to everybody for The Mermaid and Mrs Hancock, which is just a riotous, riveting filthy funny profound book which everybody should read thank you very much for listening penguin random house audio presents in extremis the life of war correspondent marie colvin by her colleague lindsay hilson marie colvin was glamorous hard drinking braver than the boys with a troubled personal life With fierce compassion, she reported from the most dangerous places in the world, going in further and staying longer than anyone else. In Sri Lanka in 2001, Marie was hit by a grenade and lost the sight in her left eye, resulting in her trademark eye patch. And in 2012, she was killed in Syria. We spoke before she started the interview. Lindsay, this is the worst we've ever seen. I know, but what is your exit strategy? Pause. That's just it. I don't have one. I'm working on it now. The following morning, I woke thinking of a friend who had been kidnapped and murdered in Baghdad. That could be Marie, I thought. I was on the bus heading for work when a message came through from a Spanish friend in Beirut whose journalist husband was also in Baba Amar. I think something terrible has happened to your friend Marie. Have you heard? The audiobook is read by the author and is available to download now.